Are you looking to learn more about investing in the central Indiana real estate market? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty, where we discuss all things related to investing in the central Indiana real estate market. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Tallman with TNH Realty. We are a residential property management company that services the central Indiana market. Today's guest is Ted King. Ted is the owner of Goosehead Insurance Agency here in beautiful Carmel, Indiana. Welcome to the show, Ted. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. You know, last month, Ted, um, on our podcast, we did the mortgage person. <laughs> so this month, I thought it kind of made sense to bring on another piece of the pie as far as what investors need, um, you know, as, as they're getting into real estate, and that's the insurance person. So insurance isn't necessarily a real exciting topic, but at the same no, it's time, not. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, it's a really, really important topic. You know, insurance is people think of it as an expense, but until they need that, they have that claim, and it, it's that's what's why you have it. So Talk a little bit about your background, kind of where you grew up, just so people have a sense of of who you are. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm originally from Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, I, I I had a different upbringing, I think, than most people I meet. Um, I'm I'm an inner city kid. I was a minority, you know, where I grew up, and my parents were older. My dad was 48. My mom was 38 when I was born, and uh, we didn't have a whole lot. Went to you know middle school, high school, time for college. I I, uh, I went to work full time and put myself through community college, and then uh, did transfer in. Got a got a four year degree. The big plan for me was to be a teacher. I was gonna um, be like a high school learning learning disability type type teacher and coach high school football. That was that was that was the big plan. Um, I ended up working with kids uh, just in a different setting. I worked in churches for seventeen years. And um, I, I just got too old for that. And the kids got younger and I got older. And right. the thoughts of pulling an, an all-nighter or something just seemed ter terrible to me. So I wasn't real sure what I was going to do. I looked at maybe realtor, loan officer, and ultimately landed insurance. Uh, I did a stint with State Farm. I felt like it's jail. I did a stint with State Farm for a year <laughs> and uh, quickly figured out I didn't, I didn't want to go the captive model. And uh, this brokerage, Goosehead Insurance, that I'd never heard of, was reaching out going, hey, you should come with us. We'll give you 50, you know, access to about 50 carriers. You can shop the market for your people and it'll be great. So um, opened my brokerage. It'll be four years in March. And uh, we've been in Indiana eight years and married uh, to my wife, Michelle. I have a son, uh, Will. He's 12. And uh, we love it here. It's great. It can get difficult with a little snow on the ground today, but other than that, it's uh, we love it. Yeah, Indiana's it's it's typical Indiana weather. It was seventy last week, and then it was like twenty seven this morning or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And we had snow over the weekend. Yeah, so so just just a, a I think a fine point there. You you work for State Farm, um, so if you go to State Farm and you take policies for State Farm, you're getting State Farm's policy. If you work with a State Farm rep, you're going to get a State Farm policy. You're a broker. You just want to break that down just real quickly, the difference there? 
Yeah, so I actually, as, as far as I can tell with the other insurance people I sort of network with, I think I'm the largest broker uh, in Indiana. N- not that I have the most number of clients, but I have. I think I have access to the most number of companies and wow. we have 50 here in Indiana. So essentially I get people's information and I, ju- I just go shopping for them. Mm-hmm. If they have someone they want me to stay away from, they go, oh, well, we hate Nationwide or Allstate or whoever. Then I don't, I won't get quotes from them, but um, or if there's someone they really want, you know, pull to them, I'll make sure that, that we get those. But my system is set up where it will pull back rates from all 50 companies. And we just look at the top of the list, usually top two or three or maybe you know close. And we jump in those carriers and, and get them quoted out and figure out which one has the best fit. Yeah. You know, just in full disclosure, we moved over, right? We moved over all of our properties, like my Scott and my properties are individual investments. Um to you a while back because we were with a, a large company as well. And then it just, you just beat them. <laughs> the reality <laughs> is. And um, so that to have 50 different companies at your disposal gives your clients a, a lot of different, I guess, a competitive advantage that you provide them. So that's, that's pretty neat. But- well, what, the way I think about it is you're right. No one, no one wants to talk about insurance, right? It's boring. It's, it's something you have to have. And we try to make it easy, right? Because we can chop the market. You don't have to call to 10 different places to get quotes. We do that for you. Um, and then we try to build a relationship over time because we're not stuck with one carrier. So if we start with a nationwide or travelers and the rates get terrible, like we fire them. And right. there are other companies that will we'll take them and, and we'll have good rates. Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate you kind of setting that stage. So let's get into this a little bit. If I'm a new investor and I get my property under contract, I need to start in, you know, you're the agent, if you, know, you have a real estate agent, they're going to should advise you, or you should probably know that you need to go find some insurance before you close that property. So tell me what the conversation is going to look like from your standpoint, what kind of coverages I need, what you recommend, and, you know, just kind of give me the, give me the elevator pitch from, from the standpoint for, with a new investor. Yeah, sure. So first we try to figure out what they're going to do with the property. Is this going to be sort of like a vacant uh, rehab for a bit and then they're going to put tenants in it? Or are they going to sell it? Or maybe it's rent ready and they buy it maybe with tenants in there um, because those are those are two separate types of policies. And so let's say we figure out it's going to be vacant for a while, more than you know 60 days. There's a, a specialty type of insurance they need that allows for vacancy, especially if they're doing rehab. And by rehab, it can be cosmetic. It could be, you know, floors and, and a bathroom and a kitchen or whatever. Um, it does. The differences really come in there when it's like foundation work or moving like a load bearing walls or an addition. You know, that's a little bit different. But generally, it's you know, if it is going to be vacant and they're going to either flip it or put tenants in it, um, you know, cosmetic rehab. And that's a specialty type of insurance that you need. The state farms and nationwide and travelers of the world don't, they don't do that type of insurance. I do see that sometimes people come to me, oh, I have a quote for state farm for this. And I go, well, that's, it's different. That's for a tenant occupied rehab mm-hmm. Eddie property. What you're doing is, is different and that won't, that won't cover you. So once we figure out what they're going to do with it, then that tells us sort of, sort of what to do. So the first one, those vacant policies are typically actual cash value policies and they're short term. They're not a great policy. And you don't want to stay in them long term. Occasionally, I'll see someone with a buy and hold portfolio that has a bunch of actual cash value policies that are meant for sort of vacant. Um, and the coverages are bad. They're usually more expensive. 
and you don't you don't want to stay in those very long because if something bad happens, you're not going to get as much out of that policy as you would think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on the so you so that makes sense. I mean, because if if you're a flipper, then you got to get into a different product than if you're someone that's going to buy and hold and rent um, that policy or rent the property rather. So something that we're seeing just because of our market right now. And we used to see this used to be the main source of our business. It's the, what we call the reluctant landlord, right? So it's someone that has built a house or has bought another house and can't sell their personal residence. And, you know, back in 2000, between 2007, 2013, 14, there are a whole lot of those people, but the last seven, eight years, everyone could sell their house, but our market is changing and it's slowly becoming a, well, I don't think slow. I think it's quickly becoming a, a buyer's market. So if I have my personal residence and maybe I'm doing it intentionally, you know, we do have people that say, look, I want to, I'm buying another home, but I want to rent my home. And because I want to do that, I want to be a landlord. So if they're converting a personal residence into a rental home, you know, a lot of people think, well, I got insurance. I'm good, but they're not. And can you explain kind of the difference of yeah. the insurance policies there? The, the crux of that one is if they're going to still live in it and rent it out like a, like a room or something, or if they're vacating the home and renting right. it entirely to someone. Now, if yeah. they're going to live in it and rent out a room or two, there are some uh, short-term rental endorsements you can put on a regular homeowner's policy that will cover you there. Um, but in, in this scenario, I think it sounds like they're probably moving out of the home going right. in most cases. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. You have to change it. So you go from a primary residence policy, technical terms called an HO3 into a rental policy, which is a technical terms called a DP3. Um, and they are different. And you, you typically want to do this because the rental policy should be cheaper than the homeowner's policy and it covers you correctly. So it would it would make no sense to leave your normal homeowner's policy in place because you can get the type of coverage that you need and it should be cheaper. Really? That's news to me. I didn't know that because I always, and maybe that's changed over the last several years, maybe not, but I always assumed that or thought that that rental dwelling policy was slightly more expensive because I do think it make it makes sense in in that kind of policy to raise your liability a little bit because you do have more liability, you know, you're not going to sue yourself, but your tenant can, and sometimes does sue you. Um, so they are cheaper though. Yeah. Yeah. And here's, and here's the reason why. So, so one, just as a side note on whatever home or rental policy you get, you should always max out your liability. Mm-hmm. It's super cheap to go from a hundred thousand to half a million. It's usually 10 or 12 bucks a year. It's like a dollar a month. You should definitely do that. Um, the, the other part is the rental home policy is similar to the regular uh, traditional where you live home policy, except that it's the, where the savings comes in is the personal property. So in your primary residence, you're insuring you know $100,000 or $300,000 worth of stuff. But in your rental property, you probably own the stove and the refrigerator, and there's just a thousand or two thousand bucks there. And right. so Usually you'll see, you know, the coverage to rebuild the home will be very similar because the price per square foot rebuild cost will be the same, whether it's a primary residence or rental. But the the cost savings should come in that personal property space where you go from a couple hundred thousand in coverage to a couple of thousand in coverage, unless you're going to Airbnb it and you're furnishing it. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I learned something today. I like that. So (laughs) 
along with that, I wanted to talk about renters insurance as well. We, we being TNH, we require it. It's part of our resident benefits package. It's built in um, because if they, and we've, trust me, it's been very valuable over the years of, you know, small kitchen fires to big fires to whatever um, tenants are insured. And if it's their, if it's their issue, if they're responsible, that, that, that renters insurance is going to pick it up. So what do you advise people as far as renters insurance goes? I'm assuming you sell it or offer it, but you know, do you have that conversation with landlords or do you kind of let them bring that up to you? Oh, hundred percent. So I'm a, I'm a landlord as well. I've got a couple of doors over in Lawrence and um, I even, you can't, you can't technically pay for their renters uh, insurance, um, but you can give a discount on the rent. And that's what I do. Mm -hmm. like, you bring me a paid in full, uh, you know, renters insurance policy for the year. We'll knock, you know, whatever it is, 10, 15 bucks a month off the rent to, to make sure that's there because it's the first line of defense. So if your tenant knocks over the candle that sets your place on fire, if they've got renter's insurance with enough liability, that's what's going to take care of it. Right. And it doesn't go against your policy. It doesn't affect your insurance rates. Claims stay with you for five years. And so if you uh, have to file a claim on your insurance, even though it's the other person's fault, uh, the rates are going to go up and you're going to eat that. Uh, not only the deductible, but the, the claim's going to follow you for five years and make your rates worse. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, it protects the tenant too, because they have, you know, if, if, if there's a, a fire, that's maybe not their problem, or maybe it is their problem, but their, their personal belongings can be covered in case of theft. Um, and then, you know, I know the devil's in detail with these renters policies, because sometimes the house becomes uninhabitable, then they have some um, I can't think of the term. I'm sure you know it, but yeah, loss a, of use. Yeah. yeah. Loss of use. And they can go and get a hotel that's paid for. Um, so it really protects everyone. Something else I just learned, you said you, you as a landlord, you cannot pay for that. Is that what you're saying? You're not supposed to. I mean, people, okay. but you're not supposed to. Right. Yeah, we don't. When we, you know, we used to just require it and be all this difficult auditing because, you know, theoretically you can put a, buy renter's insurance policy one day and cancel it the next after move in. Um, we monitor that now. It's all, again, built into our resident benefits package that the tenant pays for. Um, but it's just kind of a no-brainer for a landlord to, to make sure that that's required. So, okay, let's switch gears just for a minute here. Because um, you went over the occupied properties, unoccupied properties, talk about some renter's insurance. So something I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about today is that the indie market, um, really the whole country has seen a, a big rise in values mm -hmm. of real estate. And that's all real estate, whether it's owner occupied or rental properties, everything's gone up. And so a person that came to you or started a policy, let's say seven years ago, um, and they still have that same policy. It's probably time to reevaluate that, right? Because I think we're seeing, and I read a headline recently that America is very uninsured, uh, underinsured rather, um, on their real estate. So talk about that and how that's affected your business and conversations you've had with landlords. Yeah, you know, really, this came to mind for me uh, during the height of COVID, and you know, Trump. Uh, Lumbers triple the rate, you know, labor is more expensive and, 
you know, you started seeing the cost for new home builds going up and you start going, man, if, you know, some of these policies, if, if that house burns down, like there's no way they're going to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. And so you, you should always keep an eye on that. Um, you know, we insure against the, right. We always are, there's a tornado or a fire. If we can cover that, we can cover your roof that gets blown off, right. Or a burst pipe. So we always insure against the worst things, but absolutely. Um, the cost of materials are rising, the labor, the, you know, things that you used to be able to get a basement dry out for 5,000, you know, it's costing eight or 10 now. And um, so you definitely want to take, take a look at those things. Um, but I also think you have to be prepared that as the costs are rising, inflation, uh, insurance is getting more expensive. And uh, I think one of the biggest things I see, I, matter of fact, I helped to uh, someone last night with a couple policies who's out in, you know, Utah buying, buying here and they had budgeted, you know, X amount for a duplex and X amount for a triplex. And uh, after we shopped 50 companies, you know, their numbers were off. I mean, not substantially, but they were off. And um, in general, you know, investors should be budgeting more for insurance costs because it's definitely on the rise. You know, when I have 50 companies in the last, you know, few years, Maybe 10 or 15 are taking rate increases at any given time, but that's okay. We'll just use the other 30, you know, companies. But these days it's, you know, 48 are taking rate increases and the two are not taking rate increases. They've just tightened their underwriting restrictions and they're not taking much new business. They're just saying everything's ineligible. Mm. So you should be prepared to pay more for your insurance, your regular home, your car insurance, your rental insurance. It's all going up right now. Okay, before we get into that, Alex, I do want to talk about that, but I want to just circle back just a minute because let's just say that you come to me or I come to you and I say, "Look, Ted, I'm buying this property. I paid two. I paid. I paid one hundred fifty thousand dollars for it. What coverage do? What What are you recommending I cover that property for? Because I think that ties into what you said about." If I'm underinsured because build costs have went up, you know, I I could be in trouble. So that hundred fifty thousand dollar property, what are you recommending I insure it for? Yeah. So we we first find out how big it is, and okay. we find out what kind of exterior. Those are the two biggest things. If it's like a brick, you know, a two thousand square foot brick, you know, a two story home then that thing may insure for $350,000 or $400,000. Um, where I do meet a lot of people who go, well, I bought it for $100,000, let's insure it for $100,000. And I go, well, that's not even $100 a square foot. There's no way to rebuild that. There's no, there's no builder out there that's going to put your home back like it was before. And so um, you really should think about it in a price per square foot rebuild thought process. Okay. And the purchase price has very little to do with how much we insure something when it comes to one of those tenant occupied replacement cost policies. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a really, really important point because I think most people would think I paid 154 and I'm going to $150,000 of insurance. Now let's say this, let's say I don't take your advice. I buy that 2000 square foot brick ranch for 150. You think it's 300, you know, I rent it and then it burns down. What do I get? Yeah. So if if you do a stated value like that, because the insurance companies are going to recommend this you know, $300,000 worth of coverage. And if you say no, they go, OK, well, we're not going to cover it at replacement cost. We're going to cover it at actual cash value. 
And so, you know, your house burns down and they're not going to give you enough to rebuild it. They're going to say, well, you bought it for 150,000. The most we're going to pay out is 150,000. Um, however, a lot of people go, well, I'll just take my 150,000 and walk away. I'll just leave the burn down. You know, insurance companies got wise to that years ago. And so, so most of them have a clause in the fine print <laughs> that if you want to cash out, walk away, it's 10% of whatever it's insured for. So you might get 15,000 and, mm -hmm. and they're, and then they're going to take the land and whatever and resell it or, or you know, do whatever they got to do. What about the mortgage though? Yeah. The, you know, they're not going to usually allow that anyway, right? You could only even consider that if you were a cash buyer. So if you've got a traditional lender, they're going to make you have a replacement cost policy. Okay. So okay. a, a lot of times um, we have to provide um, the online tool that we use that comes up with these values where we say, oh, it has a basement and it's brick and it has a two-car garage. And okay, that says $383,000 worth of rebuild. A lot of times the mortgage companies will make us even provide that to make sure it's uh, insured 100% to value is what they call it. Um, so if you've got a traditional lender, the idea of even going, well, I'll just take 100000 in coverage for it, that that they won't even allow for it. That's not even an option for you. So if I pay cash for it and then I do the $150,000, you're telling me that I could literally walk away with $15,000 if the house burned. If, if, that's, if you say, I don't want to rebuild, I don't want to put the extra money in, I just want to be done with this. A lot of them have a 10% clause and that's, that's what they're going to pay you. Wow. So it makes all the sense in the world to get that replacement cost 100%. insured. Yeah. yeah, and 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 when you switch the actual cash value policy, it's usually more expensive anyway, because they're really designed for the vacant like rehab stuff. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, okay. So it's it's not it's not something you want. It's not it's not great coverage. The best way to understand one of those is the roof. Roofs are supposed to last thirty years. Your roof is fifteen years old. Bad storm comes through, blows it off. Uh, a new roof is 20 grand, but they go, well, it's 15 years old. We're going to depreciate it halfway through. Mm -hmm. Instead of 20,000, you get 10 minus your $1,000 deductible. Here's your $9,000 check. You come out of pocket for the other 11,000 for your new roof. Right. Okay. So let's get on to cost. So if I go ahead and, and bite the bullet and take your advice to get that $300,000 um, coverage on that 2000 square foot brick ranch, um, What's that going to just ballpark cost me today? And what would it have cost me five years ago? Yeah. So I, I think there's a couple other factors just to mention. So zip codes matter. Um, if it's in a high crime rate or um, insurance companies do track weather patterns where there's been losses. So if you're in a zip code that's been hit by hail, you know, storms for the last two years in a row, you're going to pay a little bit more. Um so that's that's definitely a cost factor. I think you you are also a cost factor. And what I mean by that is you have an insurance score, like a credit score, but it's an insurance score. It's made up of about eight or nine different things. Um, credit is a part of it. Not the insurance pulls your credit, but um, you know, looks at consumer reports and things. And so if you have a low insurance score, you're going to get a worse price. If you have a high insurance score, you get a better price. So you're definitely part of it. The other part is if you've had any claims. So just like your car insurance, if you have an accident or ticket and your rates go up and you go to switch companies and they see that you've had an accident or ticket, your rates more than what it could have been. The same thing happens with rental insurance. If you've had um, a claim, you know, it follows you and it'll make your future rates that much more expensive. 
So those things are also factored in. I just thought I'd mention that when it comes to, comes to this. But I think um, you know a three hundred thousand you know rebuild on a you know two thousand square foot house. You're taking a standard thousand dollar deductible without any you know extras. Um, I see that easily being a nine hundred thousand dollar, maybe eleven hundred dollar policy now. Okay. I think that's- I think when I started, even three years you know four years ago. That's probably eight hundred bucks. Really? So it's went up substantially then as a percentage. Yeah. A, yeah. I, mean, I used to tell people in the rental space, you know, the like thousand square foot two and ones or three and ones, you know, you should pencil in six to eight hundred dollars is what I used to say. I would say seven to nine hundred now. You know, duplexes that are, you know, eight hundred square feet aside, nine hundred square feet aside. I used to say, you know, a thousand to twelve hundred, and I would go. 11 to 13 or 12 to 14 even wow. now and where it's really getting pricier your triplexes and your quads because mm-hmm. when it's the three families or four families the liability exposures are that even you know that much more um you know i'm seeing those push two grand 2500 at times even right so i got to go back for a minute because you said something i've never heard of we have an insurance score Everyone has an insurance score. You That's do. a real thing. <laughs> That's a thing. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. How do I find out what mine is? Well, you could always talk to someone like me when we run quotes and we can look at it. And um, some carriers will tell you, you know, they'll give you um, sort of a sliding like he's excellent or poor or whatever. Um, one of the things I do is if let's say there's a husband and wife team, this is a good tip for anybody else that's out there. Let's say you've got two people on the mortgage. You should have your insurance person run two quotes, one with the, I'll just use a husband and wife as an example, one with the husband is the first named insured, and they should run a second quote with the wife as the first named insured. They will have different insurance scores and one will be cheaper than the other. Wow. So they're actually numeric scores, like between what? What's the range? Do you know? Yeah. I I mean, I think it's akin to like a credit score. Okay. Like you see 700 plus 750 plus, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. Wow. I never knew that. That's so my car insurance is my name's first, but our house insurance, my wife's name's first. Um, she was $400 cheaper on our house insurance than with my name first. What'd you do? First, I know that. I don't know. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. Another topic I want to go over, um, something that I think is really important for investors as they start to amass some wealth and amass some properties. Um, they become bigger targets and lawyers love people with money. They love going mm-hmm. after people with money. They love going after companies with money. And I want to talk about umbrella policies to where it's just a, do you want to explain that? And and I guess, again, conversations you have with investors about whether they need one or not. Yeah, for sure. We recommend them highly. Um, they're not super expensive to get um, anywhere from a million to $5 million extra worth of liability coverage. So an umbrella does exactly sort of what you would think, right? You, you open an umbrella, it goes up over top. Um, well, in an insurance world, it goes up over top of your home, maybe your auto, and then you have all your rental policies. And then there's this extra layer of protection that if something really bad happens, you know, fire or a bad car wreck or whatever, someone's really injured and that underlying liability limit is not enough. So at that point they're turning to you and say, Hey, this uh, $2 million problem happened. 
and your thing's paying out 500,000. So we need you to settle up the other 1.5 million. This is where your umbrella policy comes in and pays more. So not only does it pay medical, right? If someone's hurt or injured, but an umbrella is a little bit different in that it will pay typically court costs, uh, awardings and settlements, um, any sort of like lawyer fees um, or court costs. And so it will, it will go beyond a traditional liability on your regular homeowners or rental insurance into the realm of when you do get sued and it can help you there as well. Right. Yeah. I think they're important. Um, I think investors that have, again, any sort of portfolio needs them, needs one. And um, I think they're, they're great tools. So another little policy I want to go over, you actually brought this up when we had a brief conversation yesterday. Um, Indianapolis was built on a swamp. I think, I think I'm right about that. And you know, we have some flood zones here um, in Indianapolis and that in some cases, I think investors look at a property and hear if it's in a floodplain and it's an automatic no. You may have a different thought on that. And could you talk about flood insurance a bit? Yeah. So surprisingly enough, there are some <laughs> flood zones here. Uh, I think Indiana is so flat that maybe it's not difficult right. in, in areas that maybe wouldn't wouldn't otherwise. And uh, I think investors sometimes get nervous, right? They go, oh, it's in a flood zone. I got flood insurance. Flood insurance is $2,000 a year. It's going to kill my deal. I can't, I can't do it. Um, well, it doesn't have to. And so one of the nice things that I really like about um, my Goosehead agency, we have access to seven or eight flood insurance companies. Um, some of them are what's called NFIP, or that's the government-backed flood insurance. Um, up until recent years, uh, mortgage companies required that NFIP product, and it is expensive. It's a government-backed thing, and they're not cheap typically. Um, now, the laws have changed. I think it was uh, July of 19, um, where if it's not a government loan, if it's not a, an FHA or something like that, um, mortgage companies now have to take private flood insurance, and it is usually half, if not less than half, um, of, of what these NFIP policies are. And so sometimes we'll find something in a, in a floodplain where an NFIP policy would have been 1500 bucks. And we're able to get it for 600 or 500. And um, wow. so it doesn't have to be a deal killer. Um, you know, the, the biggest factors in the flood zones really come to the amount of coverage that's needed and uh, what type of foundation it has. So the basements are more expensive, right? They'd right. Be easier to flood a basement than a crawl space. And so, um, you know, those are the two, the two biggest, uh, you know, factors. Your insurance score doesn't really play into uh, with flood insurance. Really, it has to do with the amount of coverage, the flood zone it's in. There are, you know, tiers of flood zones and uh, what kind of foundation it has. Right. Well, that's good to know because I do think, I, you know, my perception until I had a conversation with you recently was, you know, avoid flood zones. I still don't think they're like, if, if you have similar properties and one's a flood zone and one's not, it probably makes sense more sense to go with that one that's not. But at least it's good to know that there are products out there um, that won't make your numbers horrible. Um, because let's face it, sellers of properties in flood insurance in, in, in flood zones know that they're in a little weaker position and you can probably get better deals uh for properties inside a flood zone. So if your insurance doesn't become a huge problem, then it could be a good win for you. 
as an investor. So, and I think okay. just as a, a little pro tip, um, let's say you find a, a property that you like and it's in a flood zone, you can always ask that um, person that's selling for a copy of their flood insurance and see what the rate is. Um, and they're it's one of the only, maybe the only insurance product that I know of. You can literally take over their flood insurance. Really? Product. You can assume it. Yeah. So that's a worst case scenario. You go, oh, okay, this guy's paying 800 bucks a year. Let me run the numbers with that. 800 bucks a year for the flood insurance still works for me. Now, maybe you come to me and I find something for five or 600. Right. But in the worst case, you can just take over that policy. Right. All right. Great. Well, it's been great, Ted. Um, if, if people wanted to reach out to you and have a conversation about, you know, maybe changing their insurance carrier or just starting you know, fresh with a new policy. How do how do people reach you? Yeah. Um, so the the two easiest ways is pick up the phone, give me a call. Um, me or my team. I've got I've got three amazing rock stars that work with me. Um, so my my number is 317-343-4774. I mean call or text that. And um, then the other would be email. I think it's a great way. So it's just my name. It's Ted period king at goosehead.com. We do have a Facebook group. You, you know, you can find us there. You can see some reviews. You go online, uh, Google, look up our shop. You can see reviews there. And there's ways to contact us that way. But usually, I'd love to hear from people because I, I'm with investors. It's not just give me an address. Let's run you a quote. You know, I want to figure out what they want to do. Right. Someone who's just going to have two or three properties, we do the insurance one way. But if you want to scale to fifty, we're gonna, we're going to we're going to look at it and do it a little bit different. Um, and so as you grow, we want to grow with you. And so we want to spend some time to get to know you and what your goals are and what you're planning to do. Yeah. And you offer insurance. You do commercial policies too, right? So you, you can do Absolutely. the apartment buildings, things like that. You offer a full suite of stuff. So kind of a one-stop shop. It's, it's, it's good to know. Um, so before I let you go, just some quick questions I like to ask guests. I'm going to put you on the spot here a minute. Okay. So what is your, you live in Carmel. All right. Carmel until recently was known to have really no good restaurants. I mean, it was, it's a bedroom town. It's got the Max and Irma's it's got the every chain possible, but what's your favorite restaurant? I'll say in central Indiana, since you're a Carmel guy, but you can shoot anywhere in central Indiana. Like if it's date night, where do you, where do you go? Oh, date night. Okay. I was, I was going to pick a good lunch spot. Um, I think for date night, we have, um, you know, actually the, uh, the theater that does the food and the movie. Oh, the, uh, beef and boards. Um, that place is great. And there's another one that does, um, where you can eat and watch a movie all in the same, uh, same spot. And we recently went there and, and checked it out and it was, it was somewhere in Carmel and, uh, that was that was cool. We kind of do two things at once, and, right. and they show some odd movies too, like stuff maybe that's not new. You know, some of the right. old, the older stuff. And we really, yeah, because really, really like that because beef and boards is like live performance. So I don't know if you're talking about that, but there's a spot near us, the living room at the Bottle Works, um, living room theater. You can, I think a lot of theaters are coming this way. You can order all kinds of food and um, watch the movie. They bring it to you. It's it's pretty neat. You know, it's a night thing. So. All right. If you could live anywhere in Indianapolis or central Indiana and price was not a factor, where would you live? Mm. Yeah. If school systems are the same and price and all that kind of good stuff. Um, 
I'm probably going where there's a little bit of land. So, so you, so you, yeah. you grew up in, you said densely urban area. Yeah. Inner city. And, and you want, well, I would, I would probably head North a bit and, and get out into, you know, Cicero or maybe even a little bit further than that and uh, have, have a spot with a little bit of land, get some property. Yeah. It's funny, I guess, you know, we, <laughs> we have some bad memories of our childhood. I grew up on a more acreage than, you know, I think our, our, our property was 124 acres. I think I grew up on. So we had no neighbors in the middle of nowhere. And now I live in the city, you know, and that funny, like how we kind of <laughs> flipped there. I guess we, maybe our childhood has scarred us and <laughs> we want to, we want to live in different places, but I get the idea of it. Um, it's just a lot to maintain. I'll say that uh, to live in a property like that with a lot of, with a lot of land and there's, there's more upkeep, but all right, Ted. Well, Hey, thanks for joining me. It's been great chatting with you. Uh, we hope everyone has picked up some information that'll help them in their investing. I know I picked up several things today that I thought were nice little nuggets of, of uh, you know, to, to help in my investing and just advising some of our clients. So we'll be back with another uh, next month with our podcast. In the meantime, we encourage you to share this podcast with your investing friends, leave us a review and don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions until next time. Thanks so much for listening and please stay invested in your investment.